Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast, the brief weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Carrie Eleveld is out. Hopefully, she'll be back next week. As guest host, we have Daily Coast political director, David Neer. Thank you, David, for uh, helping out today. I am super excited. Let's get rolling. So the last two weeks, we talked about Ukraine. And if you haven't seen those shows, I would highly, highly recommend it. Two weeks ago, we talked to some ex-Army officers. Actually, one of them is, is still in the U.S. Army Reserves, logistical officers, talking about the difficulties Russia has had invading Ukraine. Last week, we talked more geopolitical about the role of fossil fuels in fueling these despotic regimes like Iran and, and Russia and Venezuela and how that really skews foreign policy. Um, today, we probably will touch on Ukraine, but we're gonna we're gonna take a we're gonna take a step closer to our sort of our usual fare, which is talking about elections, and we're gonna be talking about the 2022 midterm elections and specifically the Senate race. David Neer obviously knows about elections. We're gonna have as our guest JB Persh. He is the president of the Senate Majority PAC. That's the political action committee that's affiliated with the Senate Democrats was launched under Harry Reid back in the old days, now is sort of affiliated with um, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. And their job is to try to get more Democrats elected to the Senate. And so one of the things we're going to talk about, obviously, is, is <laughs> you know, the tough political climate. What are our chances of not just holding the Senate, but expanding it into an actual majority? And we're going to talk about sort of the issues that may impact that. And one of those issues, obviously, is Ukraine because Russia uh, or Republicans like Ron Johnson had been sort of pretty well attached to Vladimir Putin and Russia and absolutely Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump just absolutely adores Vlad, wants to be his best friend. And so that's going to have, hopefully that gives Democrats an opportunity. And it's one of the things really want to talk to JB when we, when he comes on talk to him about that. But before he does so, David, can you help us set the table? What exactly does the Senate look like right now? And what is at stake this November? Happy to. So of course, we all know that the Senate is split 50-50 with Vice President Kamala Harris breaking ties. So goal number one for Democrats and progressives has to be maintaining that majority and goal number two, or maybe best to call it 1A, is to try to increase that majority to create a mansion-proof and cinema-proof progressive majority that will actually get rid of the filibuster or at least curtail it. I wouldn't even say it's a progressive majority, right? Because there's there's more sort of moderate Democrats like John Tester and John Warner. I mean, this is not a question of like the liberal wing versus a conservative wing. It's Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona who are just, they're obstructionists. They're not even interested in working with a caucus to come up with compromises and, and sort of work through the legislation like a John Tester or John Warner or a Mark Kelly, you know, who, who's been moderate in certain areas. They're happy to work with a caucus. Those two have, they, they're trying, uh, what are they trying to do? Do we even know? But it's not a real Democratic majority right now. Well, that's absolutely right. I, I, I would say, though, this is another example of the progressive view becoming the mainstream view over the years, just like we saw, for instance, with same-sex marriage. You know, Daily Coast was advocating for reforming the filibuster more than a decade ago. And now, like you said, even folks like John Tester from conservative Montana support some form of filibuster reform. But you're absolutely right. It's it's very frustrating and, and difficult for most Democrats because, of course, there is a nominal Democratic majority. Democrats are in charge. But because of these two obstructionists, the party can't get stuff done. And that creates a, a very troubling situation where voters want to hold you to account, whether that's fair or not, simply because the D's are in control. Yeah, I, I would argue it's, it's fair. It, I mean, it absolutely is fair. I mean, if you're in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. 
one of the problems that we have with uh, with the filibuster, obviously, is that it allows the minority party to obstruct and then point to the Senate and say, see, that the majority can't get anything done. And people don't understand the filibuster. And I've just actually been pulling on this. They, they think it's, it's so irrational that nobody believes it's actually true. But there are places where we don't need the filibuster and yet we still can't get stuff done. So like I, it's, it's on the caucus, unfortunately. And it's not fair. I mean, just because uh, it's not fair in the sense that we can explain why it's not working, but people, you know, we shouldn't have to explain complicated Senate maneuverings and the motivations of Christian cinema, who nobody understands to sort of explain that away. And, uh, and particularly people understand that the traditional levers of, of, of um, leverage in presidential politics don't really apply in a place like West Virginia, where Donald Trump won the state by like 40 points, right? I mean, he's not going to go and threaten. Exactly. Joe Biden can't walk in there and, and threaten anything because uh, reality is it's, it's a gift to the Democrats that we even have that seat and that we even have a nominal Senate majority. That's sort of the, the paradox of the situation. Like we're, we, we should be happy to have Joe Manchin, and yet it's so <laughs> frustrating that we have Joe Manchin uh, for all the reasons we'll, you know, we've talked about. So we have a 50-50 majority, and I'm using air quotes, but um, it's a nominal majority. So now we, we're walking into this cycle. Like, what what's at stake? I mean, we know what's at stake. What's what's the map look like? So. We all know that 2022 is shaping up to be a difficult midterm. So in terms of where we start with the map, we have to look at the seats where Democrats are on defense. And there are four states, really, that Democrats have to be most concerned about. And the top two are Arizona and Georgia. These are both states where Democrats won amazing special election victories in 2020, only for the final two years of the terms in both of those states. So Mark Kelly in Arizona, whom you were mentioning just a moment ago, and Raphael Warnock in Georgia, who won that extraordinary runoff just last year, they are both up for re-election. And did you want to sort of go state by state or do you want to uh, sort of look I at mean, the whole no, battlefield? Yeah, let, let's. And one of the things, I mean, obviously, when JB comes on, we'll, we'll also dig into the state by states a little closer, right? So I, I think at this point, let's just keep it broad overview sure. and we can we can really drill down with, with JB. So, you know, Kelly and Warnock certainly uh, get most of the attention, but Democrats have another two seats that are also going to be really difficult to defend. One is in New Hampshire, where Maggie Hassan is up for reelection. She won in 2016. She beat a Republican incumbent by just around a thousand votes. Uh, it's really her race that gave Democrats their current 50 seat majority that, you know, that that was the closest race of of any member of the Democratic caucus right now. And then finally, there's Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto, also first elected in 2016. Again, Nevada is a swingy state, just like New Hampshire. It's one that has kept going Democrats way by small margins for many years now. The real question is whether they can keep that magic up. Yeah, we um, there's been lots of predictions in the Senate of, of Democrats losing and even polling showing that the Democrats are in a lot of trouble. And they always seem to sort of eke it out. But by no means does that mean that we're going to continue to eke it out, particularly as we see rural areas sort of solidifying increasingly uh, against Democrats and turnout margins increasing in those places as well. So it's going to be a tough one for sure. Absolutely. But the, the other thing to remember is that, yes, this is shaping up to be a difficult midterm, but Democrats do still have some opportunities to go on offense. There are two seats in particular that top the list. I would put Pennsylvania at the uh, very head of the class. That's an open seat. Republican Pat Toomey is re retiring. Of course, again, another swing state Trump won it, then Biden won it by a pretty small margin. Democrats in general, though, have done better than Republicans statewide in Pennsylvania. And Republicans have a nightmare primary there. Well, Democrats also have a primary, but it's uh, uh, ha hasn't turned into a total uh, slugfest. And then there's Wisconsin. Uh, any conversation has to include Ron Johnson. We're certainly going to talk about him more later 
in the show. Uh, he's up for re-election. Democrats also have a, have a primary there as well. Uh, probably the most interesting candidate, the one leading in the primary polls, is the Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. He'd be the first black senator from Wisconsin. And uh, also, I have to mention North Carolina, another open seat. Uh, again, another vile Republican primary. Uh, I, I think we'll probably talk about that one, too, in the context of Ukraine. And again, Democrats uh, have rallied around uh, a, a candidate there, former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. North Carolina, I'd say, is definitely a little bit tougher than those two seats. You know, Biden won Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. He lost North Carolina narrowly. But those three all represent chances for Democrats to flip GOP seats, potentially. And then Florida. And then Florida. Uh, I, <laughs> or, or is Florida Lucy's football? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, doesn't it feel that way, man? Uh, I, I, or the great way, the white whale. I let all the the potential analogies. I, I, I mean, yeah, we 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 we'll, we'll run out of metaphors before long. But uh, you know, Marco Rubio's up for re-election. Uh, obviously, uh, he is one of progressives, top, most despised Republican senators. And Democrats also have uh, united behind a, a single candidate there. It's Congresswoman Val Demings. And she has raised a ton of money, certainly uh, running against Rubio helps. And also remember that in 2016, when Rubio ran for president, he didn't want to run for re-election to the Senate. He had to be goaded into it. So who knows how much he really wants to still be there. But <sighs> Florida, man, it's, it, it just, it's gotten redder. Uh, and the trends there haven't been good for us. Yeah, they haven't been good for us. Uh, we're also going to have DeSantis running for re-election. So Florida is going to be a bit of a sort of a central focus of this election cycle. And, and Florida reports early, right? So it always kind of seems to set the tone for the evening. And and the last several cycles, we've lost Florida. And it sort of puts its pal on the rest of the night, even if we do end up doing okay, right? Just losing Florida has that sense of like, creates a sense of underlying doom which uh, would be nice if we can reverse it somehow uh, that would be nice I, I mean that was true even in 2018 which was an extraordinary democratic year but uh like you said those returns came in early we very narrowly lost both the governor's race and senate race in florida that year and there uh, and then the narrative for like the next few days from from much of the traditional yeah, media was, the was cnn kept talking about how we lost when we'd actually won 50 seats in the house right i mean uh you know the democrats flipped the house won a whole bunch of governorships uh yeah so uh, I, I, I don't expect Florida to go any differently uh, this year. But, you know, uh, as they say about baseball, this is why they play the games. Yeah, one of my I've been I've been suggesting to people um, and I did this to the, the Lincoln Project guy, you know, those those Republicans that attack Republicans um, without any value judgment on them. And I don't value them that well, actually. But I did plant the bug in her ear to say, like, keep hyping up like, DeSantis wants to run against Trump, right? Because if maybe if he could get Donald Trump to go on an anti-DeSantis tirade, undermining the governor race, that maybe maybe that might depress enough turnout. I mean, there might be some chicanery, some <laughs> some little rat effing that we can do in the background <laughs> to to you know to pull that one off. Because based on just general trends, yeah, that Florida has been a really really tough state. Now we we the states you've named. Um, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida. That's a 2020 presidential battleground. The only state missing is Michigan. And Michigan doesn't have any Senate seats up this, this cycle. That is literally the same states that we fought 2020 on. Yeah, uh, that is. And if we were to reproduce the 2020 results, uh, somehow in the Senate, uh, then we would wind up with 52 seats because the, the four seats that Democrats are defending were all in states that Biden won, even though very, very narrowly. And then you throw in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're facing a typical midterm. So I, I, I think that's unlikely, but we're going to fight and our candidates, you know, we don't have to worry about them having the resources they need. These days, uh, we have really such a strong, uh, grassroots fundraising operation throughout the party that no one is going to get left behind. Yeah. So our guest is here. So let's bring him in and let's just, we're going to be able to dive right into some of these races. Uh, our guest today is JB Purse. He is the president of Senate Majority PAC. This is the affiliated uh, political action committee with the Senate Democrats, helping Senate, helping Democrats win more Senate seats. 
JB, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to see you, Marcos. Good to see you, David. So, JB, let me just start really broad picture, right? Historically, the history tells us that the party in power in the White House always loses seats in the first midterm election, right? We all heard this a million times. The data is very clear on that. Other than the post 9-11 Republicans in 19, what was it, 92, it, it holds up pretty well. Well, there's arguably one more, and it's probably more relevant. It's 2018. Nancy Pelosi wins 40 seats in the House. Meanwhile, in the Senate, we lose, we lose two. Why do we lose two? Probably in large part because of the map. We're trying to defend in Indiana, Missouri, and, um, uh, North Dakota, among other places. And we end up too short, even though we end up um, um, winning in, of all places, um, uh, Montana and uh, West Virginia. Um, but still, we come out minus two at the end of the day and the map, the map, the map. And I think the map matters here, too. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I, actually, you, I didn't even get a chance to say, what do you think about that? Because you already jumped right into that. But it's a good point. The House, everybody's up for election. But in the Senate, we're only talking about a third of the Senate up. So David and I started looking at that, you know, going over sort of the broad overview of the map. So we don't need to get into what states are going to be battlegrounds. But the overview of that is they're all presidential battlegrounds. Every single one of them was contested in 2020. Maybe New Hampshire, not so much, but everything else was really, you know, there were hard fought states at the presidential level. How does that tie into this idea that the map might be, you know, might help bail us out in some ways? Well, I think a couple of things here is, is that every, every uh, in that core seven or eight states that you keep talking about, and I listened to you and David at the outset here, and you don't really need me because you got a pretty good handle on it. But um, uh, these, these states at those seven, eight states at the outset are, are not just battleground, but where we have incumbents um, running this time. And as you said, about a third of the Senate caucus is running. Um, every single incumbent that I have that's running um, in 2022 is in a state where Joe Biden won. Um, so that's how a battleground uh, begins pretty significantly. And oh, by the way, we won in Pennsylvania. We won in uh, Wisconsin. Um, we lost North Carolina. We being Joe Biden lost North Carolina by 1.3, and um, Florida you talked about too by three and a half points. So that all suggests to you that um, um, these should these should continue to play tight. JB, one thing that we uh, alluded to at the top of the show, but that we haven't uh, gotten into detail yet. And this is something we, we, we'd we love to hear from you about. You were, you were quoted in Politico recently on this. Uh, we want to talk about all of the nasty GOP primaries that are going on in so many of these states and uh, how you see them playing out. And, you know, uh, progressives, of course, have to be careful what we wish for. A lot of us thought that Donald Trump would be easy to beat in 2016. And of course, he was anything but. Uh, so rooting for the most awful candidate doesn't always work out for us. But there definitely seems to be blood getting drawn on multiple sides in some of these states like uh, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. So uh, what are you seeing that's uh, that's really of, of note and of interest? Just allow me this one lead in thought that I think the three factors that despite a, arguably a challenging political environment that keeps these Senate races competitive, it gives Democrats um, the opportunity to keep the Senate majority is the the map that you were just speaking about and you know potentially the impact of partisanship which we can talk more about partisanship has been a, f a significant factor in races arguably since 2016 but 1820 you you saw its impact sometimes it worked for us sometimes it didn't partisanship still matters here and then lastly the quality of the candidates yes candidates still matter I think Republicans are still struggling. I think the underneath of it that probably deserves more attention in the press is this continuing tension between McConnell and Trump has played itself out into Senate races and specifically into Senate recruiting and made it uncomfortable 
for Republicans, but more to the point, made it harder for them to ascertain candidates the way they normally would. McConnell's had success in the past recruiting candidates, but now he's essentially in a Halloween costume hiding um, <laughs> because he doesn't want to get picked out by Trump as recruiting at all. And the one that just screams out starts in Georgia, where McConnell had concerns about troubled history for Herschel Walker and incidents in his past. And so he had made it clear that they were going to look for another candidate, seemed to be talking um, to Purdue and maybe to others. And when um, Trump put his arm around Herschel and said, you know, he's my candidate, um, all of a sudden, mysteriously, a whole bunch of opposition research uh, popped up on Twitter and a lot of it was being moved around and forwarded by McConnell's political allies, which was reasonably entertaining because the stuff was gut-wrenching. Three weeks later, the polling firm in Atlanta, Georgia, Trafalgar, comes out with a poll that says Herschel wins any potential primary by about 31 points. The reporter from Politico goes on the floor and asks Mitch McConnell, now what do you think about uh, Herschel Walker? And he says... I'm warming up to him. <laughs> uh, uh, the truth was, the white flag. Warming up to him, he got rolled. He got it was rolled. a, it was a white flag. He surrendered. And, yeah, he did. He did. And you've seen similar tensions in uh, North Carolina, where, admittedly, it's uh, less clear, but it it seems odd <clears throat> that um, um, there is a primary between the. Um, the former governor and a not very impressive backbencher in Ted Budd that Trump announced. North uh, Arizona is another fascinating. Yeah, no, I just I want to stress that that generally speaking, if you're a, a former elected governor of a state, that you're going to have the red carpet laid out for a Senate race, right? That is the you you know this. You're you're in recruiting. There is no better candidate than a former governor, because that person is the only candidate in that state that has one statewide. Yep. And who's galvanized, too. That's not usually true for AGs and lieutenant governors, you know? Right. um, Governors are unique, and usually they serve in a more bipartisan fashion, and usually their support is deeper, you know? And, you know, you look around and you're thinking, you're Mitch McConnell, and you're thinking, look, this environment may be positive for us, I'd really like to expand the map. And if you're going to expand the map, you know, let's uh, let's make sure we get uh, the governor in uh, uh, New Hampshire. That doesn't work out, probably because of Trump. What about Vermont? That governor is Republican. He's kind of popular. That doesn't work out. Trump may be a factor there. Maybe the fact that Sununu didn't run in New Hampshire didn't help. Um, what about in Maryland? Hogan gets out. And then what about... Hey, what about um, uh, the governor of Arizona and Governor Ducey? Governor Ducey has pulled his name out of the race like four different times <laughs> and will continue to be talked about in the media until the filing deadline in Arizona. But it doesn't look likely he's running. The Trump-McConnell tension can be connected to all these stories to to some degree, especially in Arizona, where establishment Republicans wanted Ducey and um, not once, but twice, um, Trump's put out press releases saying, A, I'm always going to be against Ducey. B, Mitch McConnell, I know you're behind this. <laughs> and so. just because this is sort of important to stress, the reason that Trump is against Ducey in Arizona and Kemp in Georgia is because they did not steal the 2020 president election for him. It's part of the narrative. Yep. Yep. I mean, is there something else? <laughs> because I haven't. It's part of the na- narrative, too. And McConnell, or, um, uh, Donald Trump has since suggested that um, uh, um, Sununu, who's now running for the Senate, but who's likely to run in New Hampshire. for election for governor in um, uh, New Hampshire, that he may still try and find somebody to run against him, even though he's running for governor for the same reason. So, yes. yes. That's a big part of the Trump's uh, motivation. So historically, JB, how much does primary trouble 
translates to a general election. I mean, presumably most people, they, they fall in line, right? Just, oh, everybody wanted, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren or whoever, but okay, Joe Biden got it. We're all going to fall in line. Um, how much does primary troubles actually portend general election consequences? You know, it's not the primary trouble. It's the quality of the candidate that results. And if um, not all trouble results in a, in a, in a bad candidate, but if, again, if you're in a competitive state in a competitive election and you come up with somebody that's viewed as either more extreme or has uh, holes in the resume and, you know, you go back in time and you think about that primary that resulted back in Indiana with a, a longtime governor, and then they ended up with a candidate, and let Joe Donnelly serve there for six years. We, we could come up with example after example where, where uh, primaries and, and um, uh, uh, extremism let, lent to bad situations for Republicans. So what you're saying is like Herschel Walker saying today that there's no evidence for um, evolution because there are still monkeys and zoos. Yes. <laughs> um, might not be the strongest general election candidate. Is that what you're he may, he alleging? May be, he may not be the strongest <laughs> candidate. You know, it's it's been said that he's popular. I think it's probably fair to say that he is known, you know, associated with playing Georgia football over 40 years ago. Not as a Georgian because he's been living in Texas up until two months ago. And, um, you know, Trump. Trump and Georgia football are the two things they know about Herschel Walker. Voters in Georgia don't know a whole lot beyond that. Not yet, anyway. And it's going to be your organization's job to help educate them. We're, we're, we're a player on the field. Yes, sir. So uh, a little while ago, we were talking about the former governor in North Carolina, Pat McCrory. He's the notorious SOB who passed, he signed the uh, HB2 anti-trans bill, which led to a national boycott of his state and uh, also cost him his job. And, but, but, uh, you know, like you were saying, the Trump uh, despises him. Uh, he's endorsed Ted Bud. Uh, McCrory has uh, clung to sort of a modest lead in the polls, but. The reason why I wanted to, to explore him further is last week he came out with an interesting ad. It was the first of its kind that we've seen where he took Ted Budd to task for praising Vladimir Putin. Uh, Budd, in a recent interview, had called Putin very intelligent and suggested that Putin was within his rights to sort of police his neighborhood. Um, and, uh, you know, the usual kind of appalling sycophancy that many far right Republicans, including Trump, of course, have shown for Putin. Is this something you see uh, having a real impact in a GOP primary? And is this an issue if, if Republicans do nominate someone like a Ted Budd? Can you see it playing a role in a general election? Yeah. I mean, the question is, it, what kind of impact will it have? And will it have the teeth they want in, in terms of that negative? And obviously, I'm not sure that the hit's too new. I'm not sure how it's going to play in the primary. I will say, incidentally, that at the same time, this attack on Bud as being uh, soft on Russia, soft on uh, Putin, the Club for Growth is attacking um, Ted Budd as um, being, or I'm sorry, Pat McCrory, the former governor, they're attacking McCrory as being uh, quote unquote liberal, but specifically um, they run footage of him um, being on a uh, podcast like this one with Fauci. And uh, at the time um, McCrory was, was uh, very praiseworthy of Fauci um, the ad goes to some trouble to show how praiseworthy Fauci was. It's pretty tough ended. And uh, what I want to know, you know, which of these two players, Fauci or Putin in this case, <laughs> is going to have more impact in the Republican primary? And I guess the safest answer is I don't know. I mean, there, there's even an effort like in, in the QAnon circles now to to deify Putin. I mean, it, this is and I, where they go goes the Republican Party. It seems like so we we may we may be a couple of months away from from support of Putin being a a litmus test for Trump Republicans. 
Trump there, himself has done nothing to dissuade that for sure. There's no arguing the inconsistency in the Republican Party in this given moment about where they are regarding the U.S. relationship with Russia. And there are senators and, and elected Republican House members that have been probably reasonably defined as sympathetic uh, to the, the Putin cause. And I think it's more than fair to wonder when each Republican candidate comes up, you know, where have they been over the course of time, not just as the Ukraine, Ukraine war is heated up, but where they've been over the course of the year, two years, three years. Normally where they've been is saying anything that, that uh, Donald Trump might find appealing. So one of the, taking a little bit of a step back from individual races, just, just, you know, since we got into to Ukraine and Russia, sort of these overarching issues that are sort of starting to define the race, right? The Republicans are trying to make a big thing out of CRT, critical race theory, um, cancel culture, masks in school, which, you know, given the attention span of people and the fact that these mandates, mass mandates are, are, are ending, you know, may not even be relevant in a few months, but right now it's still an issue. And there's Ukraine, obviously. Um, we have the abortion decision. The Supreme Court will likely overturn Roe v. Wade sometime in the summer. Uh, these are all sort of macro issues that presumably will impact the campaign. Uh, we know that a midterm election is a base turnout election. And I, I get the sense right now that their side is, is more motivated than our side is at the moment. How do you see all those issues playing out? And how do you, do you have a sense yet on voter intensity and, and if we have to worry, um, if it's, you know, where we are at, at on voter intensity at this time? Uh, look, it, it starts again with the, with the history point. Dave, David Nurse said at the outset here, talked about traditional um, primaries. And I think the underlying judgment that he had about it is, is that, Normally in off-year elections, Democrats have more to work to do um, um, in getting uh, in getting turnout um, uh, to the level we needed in order to succeed. Um, you don't need the 10 and 14 history lesson where in both cases uh, turnout was significantly lower. I do. 2010, that was the first, yeah, that midterm election after Obama was elected and Democrats got absolutely pummeled and we're still suffering consequences from that election yeah. all the maps all the gerrymandering you see today that's because we didn't turn out in 2010 i do think enthusiasm starts at a higher point uh, a higher level than elections of the past we still i think it's fair to say that republicans are in this moment um, more motivated but i don't think the floor is as low as it's been for past elections i think there's an awful lot of good reasons um, to uh, if you're a Democrat voter, to be motivated or remotivated, I think there are a lot of issues. You can see it in the data, and you and I just know them instinctually that that matter to Democrats. Some of it in the positive, in terms of the things that have gotten achieved over the last couple of years. And then, yes, there's still there's still fear of Trump. There's still um, uh, concern and anger over what happened. Uh, at the Capitol on one six, uh, and there's um, and oh, legitimate- those hearings are still playing. They're going to be playing out in prime time here in in yeah. next month. So yeah, yeah it's yeah. another major. Yeah, and I and I think you know I, I disagree when people say, well, those issues don't matter, and Trump's not on the ballot. And I think the Democrats they do matter. You know, it can't be the only thing you say to voters when you um, when you're trying to motivate them, but to you know. To say that it, it that it's not on their minds, no. I think it's got to be part of the discourse. I believe that about one six. Though I think, to put it in a different terms, voters are are um, uh, put off by the fact that Republicans actually refuse to participate in um, uh, in a, um, a conference that would have gone deeper on one six and the fact that they weren't willing to take part uh, puts off a lot of voters, not just Democrats, but independents as well. And then there's the voter suppression. Look, our Democrats know that as Americans, they were being targeted by Republicans with 
um, potential changes in the voting law at the, at the state level. And obviously some of it's not potential. It happened in places like uh, Georgia and Florida and Arizona. And, you know, the voters have every right to, to be angered by that, knowing that they were targeted directly by Republicans um, and told that they were going to make it harder for them to vote. JB, one thing that uh, I have to ask you about is this plan recently released by Florida Senator Rick Scott, who chairs the NRSC, the official campaign arm of the Senate Republican Caucus. This plan was so bonkers in, in so many ways, but the one that the plank that really stood out the most and, and, and got the most attention was Scott's argument that he wants to literally raise taxes on Americans and not just a handful of Americans. He wants, he said he wants every American to pay taxes, which by which I presume he means income taxes because every American does pay sales taxes, et cetera. Uh, Probably, he said yeah. so that, so, so that everyone has quote skin in the game. When I, when I read this, it felt like an unbelievable gift an unforced error. Do yeah. you see Democrats making an issue of this? Do you see it having an impact or is it, this was just uh, you know, a white paper that no one's ever going to hear about. And, and follow up comments by people like Ron Johnson suggests that that specifically what Scott said around that tax has merit with a lot of Republicans, too, that that's their view of fairness. And, you know, it's it's noteworthy that both Scott and um, and Johnson would probably be a little out of touch um, <laughs> with their own base because there are certainly a lot of Republican voters that would fall into the category of not not paying in taxes um, given their uh, income level right now, and they'd probably be surprised to know that uh, Republicans think they ought to. Uh, but I mean, the th- the dog whistle there is that black people aren't paying taxes, right? I mean, poor people are not paying taxes, and therefore everybody has to have. I think the word was skin in the game. Everybody yeah. should have skin in the game, and so he's talking about raising taxes on forty percent of Americans, and and. Without even getting into the details, can Democrats, I mean, we always complain about Democrats can't, can't get the message right. And now you're sort of one of those Democrats that people might point to. Is there a, can Democrats get on the same page and basically say they're raising taxes on everybody? Just yes. about everybody. Yeah. Because it's such a clean, simple message that undermines their entire reason to exist. I mean, they already gave up on Russia. They gave up on family values. Are they now giving up on taxes and taking away the last plank of the traditional Republican Party that once propped them up? I mean, it's an opportunity to get uh, to take advantage of. Do you see it showing up in ads? Um, I I think that right now what we got to do is is drive this and get. Um, and uh, continue to, to hold Republicans accountable. The idea that it would show up on an ad, certainly. Yeah. So you'll be you you guys you guys will be running ads. You'll be you'll be doing digital and TV and all that good stuff. I mean, what what issues? I mean, obviously we have to let the the primaries play out, and that's going to inform a lot of of the message in specific races. But from a more macro national standpoint, what are the themes that you guys see early on, maybe driving this election? Because we well, know theirs. Theirs are, you know, critical race theory, cancel culture. And, the border. And trans athletes and women's sports and the border, right? I mean. And at, look, on the Democratic side, um, it's likely abortion is going to be part of this conversation in 2022. It's likely that it won't surprise anybody if the court takes action before the election. Yeah. And it's likely to make this a more salient issue. We don't know that for sure. Um, I would add to it that I think voters across the board do have um, concerns about um, rising costs around inflation. Uh, inflation but, will be a big part of the right It's yeah. easier for Republicans to simply say, oh, this is uh, this is all Joe Biden's fault. I think voters are a little smarter about it. I think voters realize it comes out of the um, pandemic, even before what's happened in UK, uh, Ukraine, as far as rising gas costs, uh, get rising gas costs. They see price gouging. They see corporations trying to make up for lost profits, all being um, uh, part of the deal here. And um, even before you get to a partisan, oh, it's Trump's fault, it's, it's Biden's fault. And then when you get to solutions, the really the Republicans really aren't saying anything. 
Uh, yeah. Rick Scott is and, <laughs> and Mitch McConnell randomly screaming right. in the other right. direction. We're not going to take. We're not going to talk about it. We're only going to say that it's the Democrats' fault, and I hope that's enough. And if um, several Republicans have already said, including Kevin McCarthy this week, um, Putin didn't create this; Biden did. Okay, but as far as solutions, you know, let's talk about that too. Let's talk about um, trying to cut costs. Uh, for drugs. Let's talk about cutting costs for insulin. Let's talk about um, um, whether there would be a uh, uh, tax cut freeze to the gas tax for a year. Those are all legitimate issues. I think you're going to find Democrats talking about it. I think it'll be significant when Republicans try to avoid any position on it at all. It'll likely oppose a whole host of these. Yeah. So just to drill. So obviously, Democrats are going to have to deal with the inflation um, question and hopefully they go on the offensive with that. I mean, there, there's a story to be told there that if they're playing defense, um, gas taxes, the gas prices are going to be are going to be an issue. So that there are some concerns that sort of compound the the traditional midterm problem that a party in power has. On the other side, you have Donald Trump that's that's refusing to get out of the limelight. So instead of making this a referendum just on Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump is sticking his, you know, his uh, dumb ass into the picture. And now, you know, if we can make it a referendum between Biden and Trump, you know, that that thing gives us some leverage. Um, one of the issues that 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 really resonates with the party base and Biden, for whatever reason, hasn't acted on it is is uh, college debt relief. Is there anything you see on that front that that Democrats can do or run on or or pressure because that may actually depress that has a, that has an opportunity to to motivate people that right now seem to be depressed because they were promised debt relief and it hasn't happened. Look, I think Senate candidates will be talking about it, and it's very much on the minds of voters. Um, you know, uh, Leader Schumer, Schumer is a major proponent in the party um, to seeing. Um, uh, good uh, portions of the uh, debt uh, relieved and off the backs of uh, families who are struggling um, with it. So regardless of how this gets addressed going forward in this Congress, I just think it's going to be part of the conversation. So we're getting close to the end of the segment. So um, let's, I want to get back down to the, the races and I'm going to ask you, and this may be an unfair um, exercise, but I'm going to ask you anyway, like, can you rank the races in terms of opportunity uh, for pickups? Well, look, you know, that we starting with that map of those six, seven, eight states that get talked about, we already uh, uh, made mention of uh, the incumbents that get, get talked about. I, I think Democrats have a legitimate shot in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where you know, Pennsylvania will probably start even maybe a little bit of advantage um, for Democrats. Um, Johnson, as you know, his numbers are arguably as bad in Wisconsin um, as yeah. they ever were. And excuse me, in Wisconsin, I don't 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 sleep on uh, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina. Um, we've talked a lot about her potential opponents, but the the former chief justice in North Carolina is a quality candidate and uh, deserves her day. And, you know, that other presidential state you mentioned, Val Demings fundraising has been terrific. You know, yes, Ford is hard. You know, I don't talk to a Democrat that doesn't say that. It's hard, but <laughs> it's still, it was just uh, four years ago, Democrats, lost the Senate race by 10,000 votes out of 4.2 million cast. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the Senate level, we lost the governor's race by 32,000 votes. So I'm not sure we should just um, uh, give that state away. And what about any, any expand the map opportunities in places like Ohio, Iowa? And obviously these have been trending away from us in recent years. So it gets tougher and tougher, it seems, cycle by cycle. We seem to have a good candidate in Ohio, at least. Donors and activists in the Democratic Party never let me forget um, places like um, Ohio and Missouri, especially how if you're a Democrat, how can you not be annoyed by the uh, by the candidates 
um, that are running in uh, both um, oh, uh, Republican candidates in Missouri and um, Ohio that have moved not just to the right, but but um, away from uh, away from the norm. And um, so they're like they're like QAnon level candidates that may be in yeah, the Senate. Yeah, we're year. talking about potential fringe candidates and and. The Trump Derby has played out in these states where Republicans are so eager to do just about anything they are to kiss the ring. And that's part of the drama, too, in both Ohio and Missouri. So I think those states are going to get a lot of attention. Yes, they're challenging states. There's no doubt about it. Um, I think um, you'll see a um, uh, candidate develop in uh, Missouri. I think that if, uh, assuming that uh, Ryan wins his uh, Democratic primary, he's going to be an awfully good candidate as well. And JB, are there any seats to play the sort of Jiminy Cricket here on the Democratic side, not in that sort of top four we mentioned, Georgia, Arizona, New Hampshire, Nevada, that we might need to be worried about? Well, you know, um, Republicans are gate are going to make it about, you know, they're obviously focused on incumbents in Nevada, in Arizona, um, in uh, Georgia, uh, probably those three. We'll see if they bring it after um, they lost arguably quality candidates. We'll see. Um, how important New Hampshire is to them in the future, you know, well, and we'll see where they can take it from there. I'm not going to do their work for them, I guess. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Let them do that. So, JV, um, we uh, are out of time. So is there anything people can do to help you do your job better and help Democrats win in the Senate? So here's you know, a chance I mean, to pitch whatever you're working on. Yeah, I would say, yeah, uh, get involved too. There's no question that that keeping in the Senate um, uh, means so much in terms of the judges, in terms of uh, Joe Biden's um, uh, cabinet and around him, as well as uh, the course. Um, I think Republicans are already, you know, if they're not in touchdown. Uh, touchdown dance stance already they certainly have the 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 mindset that that things are going their way and they're pretty cocky about it um you need democrats to stay involved here because just like the like uh the last cycle we're playing for big huge stakes and we need your help folks so come on in the water's fine yeah, democracy. And we always say this: the democracy is on the line, but it's true because it, it is. I know it's it, felt, it feels hard, but it also feels more true um, with every passing cycle. Absolutely, exactly. Jamie Persh, he is the president of Senate Majority PAC. Good seeing you, is, Marcus. Thank you. Thank David. you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Bye bye. And you know, David, it really is about democracy, right? Because if we if we were to win a actual majority, a fifty two Senate. Uh, 52 seat majority. Then, then you could talk about things like DC statehood and expanding the Supreme Court and true voter rights and maybe banning uh, partisan gerrymandering. I mean, these are all things that can actually happen. We just need two more seats to do so. I know, David, you've been tracking these races. It's from my vantage point, and I haven't been as as deep into the weeds as you have. But all these candidates seem to be running on eliminating the filibuster, right? That's 100% true. And it's been an interesting phenomenon to watch over the years. It would be really difficult to find a Democrat who says they don't support at least some form of filibuster reform. Uh, many these days say they want to eliminate it outright. And, you know, Marcos, I, I remember way back in the 2000s, uh, Daily Coast used to put a short questionnaire to Senate candidates that we wanted to endorse. And one of our questions was, do you support eliminating the filibuster. And people were very squirrely about that back then. And Ooh. it certainly was not so a topic. Yeah, it was, it was not a widespread topic of conversation. Uh, we were often a, a, a accused of, you know, naivete. Or what if Democrats are in the minority? Yeah. And it, it's amazing how views on that have 
completely changed. And, you know, I, I sort of think of it like, uh, you know, Barack Obama, his views changed over time uh, with regard to same-sex marriage. He was the last Democrat who would ever be elected president who opposed same-sex marriage. And of course, while he was in office, he changed his standpoint. I think it would be almost impossible going forward at this point for a Democrat to win a primary in a competitive Senate race who doesn't support filibuster reform. Yeah, no, we were, we were, it was funny, like, what if the Democrats lose? It's like, yeah, it's called democracy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Elections have consequences, and they should, whether uh, the, we win or lose. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that quite strongly. And in, in particular, you know, we were talking a lot with JB about, uh, you know, how there's so often this backlash during midterm elections. And, you know, political scientists have studied this a lot. And there's a, uh, many competing arguments about why it happens. But one argument that really resonated with me is that our, our system is set up for so much gridlock that a party wins an election, and they don't even have a chance to enact the agenda that they mm -hmm. promised voters. And with this constant frustration, that kind of leads to these big swings back and forth in, in these midterm years. And so, yeah, I, I, I feel it's healthier for democracy if a party can win and actually have a chance at doing what it promised it would do. Yeah, a lot of that cynicism about politicians never deliver on what they promise. It's because the system's built in a way that actually literally prevents them from delivering on what they promised. So, David, we've been talking a lot about elections, and this is this is sort of your core work. And in fact, you just launched a podcast to dig more into into this topic. So, tell us a little bit about it, what 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 it's called, and what the focus is. What what are you trying to accomplish with your podcast? Thank you. Yeah, it's been super exciting. So, the new podcast is called The Down Ballot, and awesome. that's. Uh, that should give a, uh, a very clear sense of what its focus is, which is the same stuff we've been writing about at Daily Coast elections for many, many years now. All the elections below the level of the presidency, you know, the presidential election, of course, it's the most important one that there ever is every four years. But all of these other races are hugely, hugely important. That's we've been talking about the importance of the Senate, but you know it goes to the House and state legislatures. Marcus, you were talking about uh, you know how we've gotten screwed in gerrymandering because we've lost so many state legislative elections, and this has been our bread and butter for almost twenty years now. And now we're talking about it once a week. Uh, you can find the down ballot on every major podcast platform. Just plug in the name of the show. It's co-hosted by myself and David Beard, who is one of our contributing editors at Daily Coast. Call it David and David. The David and David show. <laughs> well, so I, I just want to be clear. I'm David Near, <laughs> and he's David Beard. Same first name, very similar sounding last names. Leads to no end of confusion. But we are not at all confused about our subject matter. So... Uh, Every week we generally have on a guest, uh, Marcos, of course, you were our first guest. We did a, a great rundown memory lane of, of how Daily Coast and Daily Coast elections came to be. But we've also had uh, other folks on to talk about uh, online polling. We had Drew Linzer. We recently had Amanda Littman, who runs the progressive organization Run for Something that helps young, diverse progressive candidates run for offices at all levels of the ballot, all the way down to school board. And so we, we get a chance to sort of do a deep dive and have a little more back and forth uh, in a different format than we do online um and it's about 30 to 45 minutes each week and it's a fun listen yeah th there's a reason that democrats have won the popular vote what in seven of the last eight elections yet we didn't hold the presidency for you know seven of the eight elections um and we don't have the supreme court we have a six to three deficit in the supreme court Democrats did pretty good on gerrymandering, but it was it was a it was a defensive action. It wasn't we weren't on offense. We were trying to limit the damage Republicans already did in 2010. And I think from all indications, we fought them to a stalemate this year, which just means that they have a huge advantage. You know, what is it? A five, six, seven point advantage in an, you know, um, if you were to aggregate the popular vote for House races, we would have to win by like seven points to win control of the House, to, to retain control of the House. I mean, it's, it's, it's rough. And why? Because they, can, they focus on down ballot. That's the focus. For so many years, Democrats have been really obsessed with the presidency, right? And you saw this play out in, in for example, the, the battle, the Bernie versus Hillary wars of, of, you know, a few years ago. Everybody obsessed with the White House, White House, White House. Everything else is atrophied 
below us. Republicans don't do that, right? So this is why I love what Daily Coast has done for you. You say a few years, David. It's been twenty years now. It's what Daily Coast has done for twenty <laughs> years. Right yep. now, it's a whole generation. We're a generation of of work. Twenty years, but also what you're focusing on in your podcast is it's this is the place where the vast majority of the of the work is done in upholding our democracy. And you can have the White House all you want, but if Joe Biden's president and Mitch McConnell runs the Senate and Kevin McCarthy or Donald Trump runs the House, because now a lot of the Republicans <laughs> say that yeah, they're right. going to look Donald Trump as the Speaker of the House. You don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker of the House. That's a fun fact. So now they're saying maybe Donald Trump can be Speaker of the House. How much is Joe Biden going to be able to accomplish, right? At very best, maybe some judges, right? But no, not even, because they'll block all no. the judges. No, nothing, nothing. Some administrative actions that the courts will throw out because the courts are controlled by Republicans. I mean, things are pretty bleak, and it's because we haven't focused on building the down-ballot uh, focus. And I know when, when Carrie comes back, she loves to talk about organizing in rural areas to minimize the damage we're suffering in rural areas. We also talk about uh, maximizing turnout amongst core democratic constituencies like young people, which is why college debt relief is so important. But, um, and, and, and David, like in recent years, donors, you know, progressive donors are actually starting to fund those campaigns a lot more, right? So we are seeing progress. I don't want to sound like it's all shit because no, <laughs> 20 exactly years ago, it was shit. Not now. That's exactly the point that I was I was going to jump in to make. Uh, you know, it, by the way, it is in fact Daily Coast's twentieth anniversary in May. I hope we have a big celebration planned for that. But yeah, uh, what we saw, particularly at the start of the Trump era, I think was for people like you and me who have been devoting our lives to down ballot elections, we finally saw a wider, much much wider group of people interested. And I think the key reason was everyone knew that you had to wait four years to get Donald Trump. Ah, but the 2018 midterms, those were only two years off. And all of a sudden we just saw unbelievable levels of interest. And I mean, we saw this explosion in grassroots donations. Uh, you know, things are just so different in campaign finance than, than they ever even, used to be. Didn't even wait that long. Cause 2017 was a special election with John Ossoff. Right, right, right. Which and, for the record, David Neer and his team were the first people to spot that opportunity in the entire political world. And people thought we were crazy. People thought we were crazy. And then uh, a lot of Beltway folks mocked us after John Ossoff lost. And we said, uh-uh, you got this all wrong. You're only looking at wins and losses. You're not looking at the margins here. And he got the margin very, very close. And then, of course, we flipped that seat. Lucy McBath flipped that seat the next year. And now uh, we call John Ossoff. We, we, we refer to him as senator. So, uh, you know, I think <laughs> it's it, it it really vindicated uh, our point of view, but uh, you know we do have to be very clear-eyed. We've always prided ourselves on being a reality-based community at Daily Coast. We have to be clear-eyed about what the stakes are in 2022, and just because things are going to be tough and things probably are not going to really turn out the way we want, we can't just go home. That we have to redouble our efforts, win or lose. And we're, we're building towards, because you never know what's going to happen in politics. We don't know how Roe v. Wade being thrown out by the courts yep. is going to galvanize uh, voters. We don't know how Ukraine and Russia and, and Donald Trump are going to impact the race. There is, this is not a normal midterm election. I mean, this is like, this is like going back to 1992 after the, after 9-11 and Republicans going like, two, well, two, 2002, buddy. 2000. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> 20 years ago. It was a long time. So it was, it's, it's thinking about, oh my God, 20 years is in the 2000s. We are really getting old, aren't we? I'm sorry, buddy. Yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. That hurt a little bit. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It hurt a little bit. But um, yeah, you, you fight because you don't know what the climate's going to look like. And I yep. got to say, there's years, I know 2010, we were looking at that. We saw that tsunami coming early and we're like, oh, this is going to be the worst. I'm not seeing that this time. It David. feels different. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a tough cycle, but I'm seeing a winnable if everything goes right. But you know what? Donald Trump won because everything went right for him. Yep. It happens in politics. It happens. No, I, 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 I agree. I felt that 2010, we were doomed uh, well, well in advance. Um, and I think that uh, there was one point that JB made that I, that I thought was a really incredibly important one. As bad as the 2018 midterms were for the GOP, they won Senate seats. They picked up Senate yeah, seats. So, you know, you have to put that on the short list of midterms where things did not go according to historical tradition. So, you know, uh, we're, we're going to fight because you never know. You cannot just assume.
Yeah, absolutely. So that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much, David, for stepping in. Congratulations on a new podcast. I encourage everybody to catch David at Daily Coast. But also, and and David, your your Twitter handle is David Near, right? And that's right. Mm-hmm. N I R. Uh, also, his new podcast, The Down Ballot, everywhere you might get your podcasts. So excited about that! Congratulations on that. Thanks to JB Persh for joining us and talking about the Senate map. Thanks to Walter for producing and the rest of the uh, of the brief team, Dorothy and Kara. And uh, thank you, the viewer and the reader, for catching the show, for visiting with us this last hour, and for being fellow travelers in this battle for our democracy. I wouldn't wish to be with anybody else at my side as we try to rescue our democracy this November. Thank you, sir, very much. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.